Well, good morning. My name is Lyndon, and I want to say a special welcome to those that are watching in Nickel Hall. And uh, I'm the pastor of Connections here. Some have referred to me as the pastor of Miscellaneous. I'll leave that up to them. How many of you ever played the game Taboo? Taboo is a game where you get a chance to speak words, but you're limited to certain words. You can't use certain words. So you pull out a card. You can't use the, the words that are on that card, but you try and use your words to get the people out there to guess. So for instance... The word that I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to, to tell me back, is a word I'm going to try and describe. So it's something you use with your eyes. If you want to see those bright, shiny things in the sky, tell me what this is. Telescope. Boom. You guys got it. Now, so, well done. Words communicated a message, and you got it. But what about the other way? Charades. You ever played charades? How many of you love charades? How many of you hate charades? <laughs> okay, so this one here. Okay, so let's try the word. So. Boom. Mailbox, okay. So. That's exactly what I was trying to say, isn't it? One of the last things that Jesus told his disciples is found in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Like taboo or like charades, communication can happen by word or it can happen by action. But when it comes to the gospel, which is it? Well, first let me define the term. The gospel is a little bit of a longer definition. The gospel, although we rebelled against God, our creator, the gospel is the good news story of God's extravagant love to reconcile and restore the world to himself by sending his son Jesus to die for us on a cross. Through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God forgives our sins making us a new people empowered by God's spirit to live in his kingdom, escaping the coming wrath and living as God's community with him both now and forever, just as he promised. That's a mouthful. Let me bring it down to one sentence. The gospel is the story of what God has done in Christ. So which is it? Is it gospel in word or is it gospel in action? Well, let's take a look, first of all, at gospel in word. What does the Bible have to say about gospel in word? And this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a list that I want you to be able to have a bit of background on. So Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And then in Acts 4, the apostles are meeting with people in the community, and all of a sudden they are arrested and they are told to stop preaching. And so they say at verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Romans 10, 13 to 17 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear 
without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Some of you have beautiful feet. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay? Gospel and word. How have we done that? Well, what images come to mind? Everything from missionaries to street preachers, door-to-door to radio preachers, tiny little tent meetings to large crusades, T-shirts, televangelists, tracts. And have you ever heard of testaments? Those little mints that you're supposed to hand out with a cross on them and they can... You ever seen those? House of James, real cheap. Enter John 3.16 and a character named Roland Stewart. Nicknamed Rock and Roland and Rainbow Man, Stewart was notorious through the 70s and 80s. You guys recognize this guy? He was known for wearing a rainbow-colored wig and dancing with John 3.16 on his shirt or on a sign behind goalposts, football games, baseball games, basketball games, etc. Unfortunately, Rock and Roland had a little trouble matching his actions with his words. I found this on a blog post called American Loons. That should tell you something. He describes it this way. Convinced that the rapture would take place September 28, 1992, Stewart began writing apocalyptic letters to and a series of stink bomb attacks at newspapers, bookstores, and even a few televangelist ministries to call attention to his prophecy. Since nobody would listen, he ended up taking hostage hostages at a California hotel and threatening to shoot down passenger jets departing nearby LA International Airport unless he got three hours of free TV time. The outcome? Life in prison. Nice. Or there's Tim Tebow. In 2009, Tim Tebow wore eye black, John 3.16 under his eyes when he led the Florida Gators to the National Collegiate Championship over the Oklahoma Sooners. What was interesting is Tebow said that 94 million people Googled John 3.16 during the game. What a pretty cool moment, he said. So that is some of how we have done gospel in word. But what about gospel in action? Let's take a look at a few of the scriptures. Matthew 25, 31. And this is a set of scriptures that many of us have wrestled with because it's fairly in your face. Verse 35 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 1 John 3.18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's verses like this, gospel in action type verses that lead us to be involved in something like this. Have a look at the screen. What's interesting is that while we are here, there are a number of our people from our church that are helping with that endeavor. When you see a, when you see a, a video like that, it often brings to mind phrases like this. People don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. Practice what you preach. Put your money where your mouth is. Actions speak louder than words. Or this very interesting statement that often is spoken in church circles. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Now this one's interesting. You see, it's attributed to a gentleman named St. Francis of Assisi. He's an Italian Catholic friar who lived in the 12th century. And this saying is often quoted when someone wants to suggest that Christians talk about the gospel too much and live the gospel too little. It's also been used by many to suggest that it's more important that we let our actions preach the gospel than it is for us to speak it out. After all, Francis was known for living a life of poverty and calling people to humble, simple lives of service and care for others. Franciscan order. In other words, if we have to do one or the other, preferences go to actions. But historian Mark Galley in his book, St. Francis of Assisi and His World, is not so sure. His words are this. Much of the rhetorical power of this quotation comes from the assumption that Francis not only said it, but he lived it. The problem is, we can't find that he said it anywhere. And nor did he live it, according to Galley. Galley continues, first, no biogra biography written within the first 200 years of his death contains this saying. It's not likely that a pithy quote like this would have been missed by his earliest disciples. Second, in his day, Francis was known as much for his preaching as his lifestyle. So it seems to me, and I could go into details, but I won't in the interest of time, that Francis was about both and. Speak it, live it. What about elsewhere in history? And if you ever want to title a book, don't title it this long. I'm going to give you a really long title. Dr. Rodney Stark said in his book, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in a Few Centuries. Great title. He suggests that the growth of the early church could be explained by how Christians responded to the world around them. The church said he was attract pardon me the church he said was attractive to non-believers because it made the ancient world a lot more bearable. Christians took care of each other. Notably the way Christians stayed back and selflessly cared for those afflic afflicted and affected by the plagues when others were fleeing for their lives left a powerful impression on their neighbors. This quote to cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. 
To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. To these early believers, their beliefs overflowed into action. One more example. In Russia, in the early 20th century, in an article entitled 10 Paradigm Shifts Towards Community Transformation, Chuck Colson makes the following observation. When the communists took over Russia in 1917, they did not make Christianity illegal. Their constitution, in fact, did guarantee freedom of religion, but what they did make illegal was for the church to do any good works. No longer could the church fulfill its historic role in feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, housing the orphan, educating children, or caring for the sick. What was the result? Seventy years later, the church was totally irrelevant to the communities in which it dwelt. What Lenin did by a diabolical design, most churches have done by default, Colson says. But the result is identical. Church is irrelevant to most people. Take away service, and you take away the church's power, influence, and effective, pardon me, evangelistic effectiveness. The power of the gospel is combining the life-changing message with selfless service. So which is it? Is it more important to share the gospel in words or the gospel in action? And the answer, yes. It's important to do both. The gospel in word and the gospel in action. Now, some of you at this point might start going, well, Lyndon, I'm, I'm, I'm not an evangelist. And some people just don't have that gift. It's not me. Please, people don't want to be preached at. And it feels too much like pressure. What do I do? You're, you're saying I'm supposed to do gospel in word, gospel in action. This puts me in a bit of an awkward spot. Well, I want to take in these last minutes I have Acts 10. It's a passage that I believe brings out some important implications for us regarding gospel and word and gospel and action. So it starts with a gentleman named Cornelius. Now, those of you who have Mennonite background, we could call him Corny. And the next person in the character is Peter. So Corny and Pete. Those of you who don't will not know what I'm talking about. It's okay. But those are good Mennonite names. Cornelius it says, was a devout man who feared God. It describes him as someone who feared God, was generous, and he was a man of prayer. So one afternoon, he gets a visit from an angel of God. I've been listening to you, Cornelius. I want you to send for a man named Peter. I want you to listen to what he has to say. Meanwhile, somewhere else, Peter was following his regular routine of praying up on the roof. He falls into a trance and sees a vision of a large sheet being led down by its four corners. All kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. And the message that he gets, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Uh, Lord? No way. Uh, you've told us that we're not supposed to eat these types of creatures. And you know as well as I do that I have never defiled myself by eating these common or unclean foods. What was the response Peter got in his trance? What God has made clean, do not call common. And just so that Peter, we know for sure that Peter got the message, that movie in his trance ran three times. 
Now that rocks Peter's world a little bit because he's been a very faithful Jewish person. He was inwardly perplexed what the vision might mean. And while he's thinking about that and musing about it, all of a sudden another message comes to him. There are three guys down at the gate who want to talk to you. Go down and talk to them. So he does, and a short conversation ensues. After the conversation, Peter decides to invite them in for the night. And the next day, he and six other believers take a two-day trip to go and meet Cornelius and his family and friends so that he would be able to tell them the message of the gospel. The result, Peter shares the good news of Jesus with Cornelius and his family and friends. While he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit actually falls upon these people and they get baptized. So let's take a look at this passage now through the lens of four key questions that I've been learning to ask whenever I'm learning to read scripture. Those four questions are this. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about what, we, what he has done? What does this tell us about ourselves? And how then should we respond? Slide one. What does this tell us about God? Well, it, for me, I looked at it and went, God is at work behind the scenes. Cornelius is a seeker. And in response, God sent him a messenger. And it set in place a way by which Cornelius could hear the good news of what Jesus has done that would round out his knowledge and give him an opportunity to respond to God's gift of forgiveness. God was doing that behind the scenes. What's the implication for us? There's more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye. God is at work and we are one piece of the puzzle. It doesn't rest on our shoulders alone. So when it comes to gospel in word and gospel in action, there's two words, ways to view this. One could be that heavy feeling that often I think those of us who want to share our faith but aren't sure how or don't want to because it's scary or we don't want to be rejected, we might approach it like this. <sighs> I need to share my faith more. Or we could approach it this way. I am a part of what God is doing. I get to play a role in seeing him change lives. God, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm in. Show me my part to play and help me to play it with freedom, joy, and enthusiasm. Two different ways to approach it. But God is at work behind the scenes. Secondly, the question is, what does this tell us about what God has done? Starting in chapter 10, verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about, this is Jesus, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. And we, Peter says, are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Two implications. First of all, Jesus modeled gospel in action. It says in verse 38, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So gospel in action was Jesus' idea. He lived that out. Secondly, Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of gospel in action. He demonstrated his love for us by willingly dying in our place. Verse 42 refers to him as appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
Verse 43 then lays down the scandalous nature of grace. This judge of the living and the dead, it says about him, to him all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. A judge whose name through which we receive forgiveness of sins. Scandalous. What does this tell us about ourselves? First, first thing it says is that by believing in him, I can be assured of the forgiveness of my sins. My sinfulness has been exchanged for his righteousness. Now this last couple of weeks has been a bit of an emotional one for me because I lost a very dear friend. His name is George Lepp. Some of you may have known him. But George's love for auctions is legendary. George is one of those guys that could walk into an auction and he would buy a thousand ties for a buck each. He would hold them for six months and then he would turn around and sell those same outdated thousand ties for six bucks each at an auction sale. But knowing George, George, there were times when money never exchanged hands. Instead, some sort of deal was struck. Some kind of bartering happened. I'll swap you my box of junk for your box of treasures. I believe that's a really good picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. There was a swap, a great scandalous exchange made between Jesus and anyone who was willing to do the deal. The deal goes something like this. Jesus says to us, I'll swap you my treasures, not, not, not another box of junk dressed up as treasure, but my righteousness. In other words, when the Father, our Creator, looks at you, He will see you as holy, pure, restored, free to live the way you were intended in a loving relationship with the Creator who loves you more than you can know. But here's your part of the deal. Swap me your box of junk. My treasure, you give me your box of junk. Your sin, your shame, your fear of the future, your independence, your brokenness, anything that stands in the way of you surrendering to you, to your life, to the one who created you and knows best how life can be. It means being restored to a relationship with my father the way he designed your life to be lived. Here's the challenge. I could say that to you a hundred times, and for many of us, we would go, yeah, uh-huh. But if we lose the wonder of what Jesus has done for us, sharing the gospel will be very hard to do. So it's not like I can just conjure up and say, okay, well, here's the wonder of it again. But instead, inviting the Lord into our lives and into our day to help us to see the wonder again of what has been taken from us and what it means when Jesus says, I give you my righteousness. When we have wonder in our life, it will overflow. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine came back from his trip from London and we were supposed to have a two-hour meeting about stuff happening here at the church. I asked him one question. I said, how was your trip to London? Bwah! 45 minutes later, he had been at the, this place where the wedding was going to be, the royal wedding, and there was this thing, and this, this uh, sword that was sitting above this chair, and he was sitting in it, and it was like a really special place, and it was just blah, 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 all this stuff's coming out. I asked him if I could speak it like that, so it's okay. But what was interesting is that it overflowed because it was something of, where he had a sense of wonder. Lord, give us that sense of wonder again of what has been done for us. 
So lastly, last question. In light of all this, how then should we respond? Peter's example gives us a number of things to look at. Number one, he put himself in a position to listen. So what do we do? According to what Peter did, we set aside time to be with God. In a place where the distractions of life don't drown out what God is saying. And, and folks, honestly, one of the worst distractions in my life is right here. Even to have the courage to turn my phone off for a half an hour and just say, Lord, let me have this half an hour with you. Or whatever it is for you. But setting aside time. Second is listening to speak to God, for God to speak in the language of your everyday life. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I, I kind of wonder if the fact that, as it says in that story, Peter was up on the roof and that he was hungry. It was almost like he was distracted while he was having his time of prayer. He was hungry. So while he was waiting, God then used hunger and this meal to speak to him. Sometimes God speaks in a language that will reach us where we're at. So what happened to me one time, I was sitting in my car waiting for an appointment. I had arrived early. It was a beautiful day. And I was struggling deeply with fear. All of a sudden, windows were open. It was a hot day. And in comes these birds, two little sparrows, and they're bashing around inside my car. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Lord brought to mind, what's the worth of two sparrows? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's consent. God wants to speak to us in a language we understand. Lord, would you do that? Would you put us in a place where we're listening? Journaling. Some of us are great at that. Some of us are not. It's not my greatest gift. But when I find myself writing down simple questions in my, in my journal, God, what, what are you up to? What are your thoughts on this? Who should I pray for? How do you want me to respond? Another thing, hospitality. Interesting, when the visitors came to Peter's door, he invited them in to spend the night. Well, that doesn't necessarily seem like a big deal. Except that in verse 28, Peter says to them, You're, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. To have those people living in his home for one night was to put his reputation on the line. But when we practice hospitality, it's a great opportunity. It's like a seedbed in which we can say we love in spite of what others think. We want you to know that the love of Jesus is in us. It's the gospel in action. The gospel in action requires that we share our lives with people and allow people to see who we are as regular people. One of the things I noticed about the letter that my daughter wrote to me when she got married, I thought she was going to tell me all these things about what an incredible job I had done as a dad. You know what she wrote instead? Dad, thanks for all the times that you apologized and said you were wrong when you screwed up. Real people. The world does not just need to see a bunch of Teflon Christians who got it all together. They need to know people. They need to see people who are breakable, fallible, and in need of a savior. Humility. When Peter arrived, Cornelius fell at his feet. What did Peter say? Stand up. I too am a man. Honest question. Is there any hint of arrogance in us? Do people catch the vibe that we are better than them? That our moral standards somehow set us apart from them? Or are we humbly living before them by the way we live and love 
and share with them, I'm in process, that God is transforming me by his mercy and grace. And finally, one little phrase. Peter got there and it says, he opened his mouth. Verse 34. Someone put it this way. Nobody gets saved by being treated nicely. They get saved by the hearing of the gospel. People come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If we don't open our mouths and commend Christ, we're not really loving them, no matter what we're doing with our hands. But again, Peter's example. He simply shared with them what he had witnessed. People don't need to hear our moral code or what we're against. They need to hear of our Savior and what he's done. When my wife and I were at Briarcrest Bible College together, she was there and I had just arrived as a transfer-in student. And I remember noticing her. Hmm. And I also remember a conversation while I was in the lunch line with the president of the student body. And I said, Colin, you know what? You know who I've noticed that, that I'm really kind of impressed with? He said, who's that? Doretha Hyde. He says, yeah, all the senior guys are, are like her, but she won't let anybody near her. And I said this, no word of a lie. Talk about arrogance. You watch. I'll get her. <laughs> now, she made me work really hard. But imagine if I had those feelings inside of me and I just decided I was going to show her that I thought she was amazing. So I'd go up to her and I'd pull her chair out or I'd bring her, you know, like something from the food. How can I, you know? And doing all these things, open the door for her, you know, stand there and look. She would never know how much I love her because she would have thought, that guy's weird. He's just like, okay, well, he's Jeeves. He just kind of brings stuff for me. I got a slave here or a servant. Until January 21st, when I sat down with her across the table in the cafeteria and I just took the risk and I said, you know what? I need to tell you that I believe God has, has put in you character traits that I want to, to be in my relationship with my wife. And I wondered if you'd be willing to get to know each other better. We never said go out, because that's taboo. And so we did. But the rest of my life, after I share that with her, and I don't stop sharing that with her with my words, but the rest of my life is an expression and a demonstration of my love for her. I speak it and I act it. And when it comes to proclaiming Jesus, how we live our lives, pardon me, we must proclaim Christ with our mouths, yes. Then how we live our lives tell people whether or not we're telling the truth about what we believe. So gospel in word, gospel in action, the resounding answer is yes. Let's sing together.